So, uh, Elspeth, uh, we're here to do episode 30. The big 3-0. The big 3-0 <laughs> indeed. It's going to be a good one, isn't it? Yeah. It's what we said we were going to do. 30 episodes. 30 episodes. Although they were going to be shorter and we've done longer episodes. We've done longer episodes. And actually, we're not going to finish here. No. This is just a birthday episode, yeah, as it were. Yeah. Okay, good. So, shall we start the episode? Yes. Let's do it. <laughs> A history of comedy. It's several objects. A history of comedy. Come and have a rummage in the archive. A history of comedy. It's several objects. A history of comedy. Come and have a rummage in the archive. Hello and welcome to A History of Comedy in Several Objects, a podcast brought to you by the University of Kent based on the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive. The British Stand-Up Comedy Archive exists to collect, preserve and make accessible material relating to stand-up comedy. In this podcast, we take one object per episode and discuss it um, to see what it can tell us about stand-up comedy. Yeah, I'm Ollie Double. This is my colleague Elspeth Miller and we are very much the French and Saunders of comedy oh, archiving. Well, of course, French and Saunders are amazing. <laughs> I don't Who like- are you? Are you... I don't know, actually. That is a good question. Which which is which? I'm well, s- I'm much shorter than you, so I'm probably Dawn French. Okay. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, I think there are amazing double act Frenchs. I don't know why I didn't. Think. We've been I've been racking my brains trying to think of, of female double acts. So I didn't go for the most obvious yeah. one. I mean, probably the greatest British female double act of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Morecambe and Wise of their generation. Yeah. Um, I, I think one of the things that's brilliant about them as double act is that. Um, Dawn French is kind of like a clown and Jennifer Saunders is kind of like an actor, if you see what I mean. D- uh, although they don't have this, the old-fashioned sort of straight man, funny man divide, they're both super funny, but in really different ways. Like Dawn, I remember seeing Dawn French on Jonathan Ross as The Last Resort on Channel 4. This was his first big chat show. And uh, Tom Jones was on the same episode. She, she, she was making jokes about... <laughs> being moist at the prospect of Tom Jones being there. And it was just extraordinarily funny. It really, I remember this is 30 years ago or more, yeah. I remember seeing it. And I, I just was struck by what an amazing, just naturally funny personality that, that she is, even though I, I was sort of already aware of her. Whereas Jennifer Saunders, she's much more kind of like a deadpan and, you, you also that she's a really really good actor as well. So although she could do all the big grotesque stuff as well, like in Ab Fab and things like that. Mm. Did, you, did, did you? I mean, did you have French and Saunders when you were growing up? Yes, I was just thinking that. I think it was the first sort of um, like sketch show, I guess, with French and Saunders. Yeah. The show that I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you call it a sketch show? Yeah. Yeah, that I watched really growing up. Really. And then I was. I think so. I'm trying to think. What I mean. It would when, fit. Yeah, kind of nineties. My my like early TV memories, apart from of like adult programs <laughs> yeah, <laughs> rather yeah. than kids TV, are things like Blind Date, Gladiators, <laughs> <laughs> Neighbours. So in that kind of era, I think yeah, French and Saunders was was okay for me to watch as a child. I think, um, and then obviously watched French and um, Dawn French and Vicar of Dibley, and I watched Ab Fab, and um, so yeah, very much. They're a classic. I mean, you know, they're an absolute classic of British comedy. I mean, the giants of British comedy. Yeah, I think, I think they were quite physical as well yeah. in, in their comedy, which, Definitely. again, as a young-ish child, 
Yeah, I don't know how old I was when I was... When was there, like... Well, they, the first series was late 1980s, um, but they did multiple series and yeah. they kept going. so I wasn't watching those ones. No, then, no. But kind of their mid-90s. Yeah, then. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just remember there was a, a ballerina kind of... Amazing. Um, <laughs> ...sketch, which I found hilarious. Well, I think yeah. one of the things about them was that they weren't afraid to make themselves look grotesque um, and they were brilliant at it. I mean, dresses as the two... You know the two fat old men. Oh, I know where actually where I knew them from before their sketch show. Yeah. Um, did you ever watch a program called The Storyteller? It was like a Jim Henson yes. production, and they were in an episode. They were the ugly sisters in um, the Cinderella type episode. It was called um, the main character was called Sap Sorrow, and that might have been the episode name as well. But they were the ugly sisters. Amazing. In that episode. Amazing. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, anyway, this episode has nothing to do with Francis no. Saunders. Uh, it's just to get us going, really. Uh, so we have a very uh, special object uh, this episode, and it's not actually from the stand-up comedy archive in this case, because we have multiple archives at Kent. Yeah, so um, our main collecting areas, really, as, as special collections, are the university's own archive, sort of historic collection, um, the British Cartoon Archive, and there's obviously lots of collections within that. And then I guess where the Senate Comedy Archive fits is in our um, comic and popular performance collections. Um, but the item we have today is a, well, it's from the Giles collection, the Carl Giles collection, who I think we've brought up a few times before. Um, but the object is a fez, one of Tommy Cooper's fezzes. Which I is mean, really cool. <laughs> I mean, amazing. It's amazing. So Giles was the guy who did those cartoons with lots of regular characters. There was the little kids and there was the grandma. Yeah. And they would sort of be a, a family. And then they would somehow, wait, the way they were interacting, would c- comment on current events. And, and the Giles annual was, was a big thing. It's a sort of uh, landscape format book, isn't it? With a, with a yeah. colour cover. Yeah. So um, I should know. I don't know what, what annual they're up to. So they still publish an annual Giles annual and each year about December time we supply lots of images for kind of not the following year but the next year's annual um so yeah wow so so the publisher comes to us to get yeah. access to the to reprint obviously the reprints because Carl Giles died some yeah. time some time ago but they actually come to us to get the original cartoons to publish the Giles annual yes yeah, so we have the Carl Giles archive so it includes um original artwork Newspaper copies, um, the annual, the original annuals, and then his studio, basically. So, like, objects from his studio. So, pens and pencils, and, like, easels. Um, and then all his research notes as well, and correspondence. Um, and a fair amount of it's been digitised, and well, a lot of it's been digitised. But presumably not the stuff from his studio. No, it's not. No, the, the studio stuff hasn't yet been... Um, Photographed, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably a few random bits have, but um, you could do an amazing sort of performance art project where you could recreate Giles' studio and then yeah, do something. It has been done a few times actually. Wow. Not since I've been here, but we have loaned studio items to places before and they've recreated his studio. Well that's Giles, but actually for me, and this is why we picked this object for the thirtieth episode. The, the star of the show is this magnificent thing. Can I pick it up? Yeah. Okay, so this is uh, a, a Tommy Cooper fez. So this was... Uh, well, first, let's describe it, shall we, first of all? Yes. If you've never seen a fez, I mean, how would you describe that? It's... Uh... It's... Well, it looks a kind of um, light brown colour. 
Almost because it's yellowish. faded quite a lot. Yes, faded enormously. Yeah. It's, you wouldn't know it had ever been sort of red. Uh, except for the little... So it, I don't know where it was in Giles's house, but clearly it must have been in a fairly well-lit room. But the... Um, the tassel, I guess, from yeah. the fez behind the tassel is still quite red. So. Yeah, so you can see that it has been red because it's it's sort of pinkish more than red, mm. but you can see that the the tassel, which is also quite faded, I mean, that's kind of almost like brownish in places, but again, you can see that's that has been black at one point. So a fez is a kind of... I suppose it's like a cylinder, but a tapered cylinder made out of um, kind of card, I suppose, covered mm -hmm. in red cloth with from the centre of the top of it, a, a black tassel. Everybody knows that, but just in case, I don't know, a Martian's listening to this or something, that's what, uh, what a fez is. And obviously it was famous for Tommy Cooper. It was his classic look wearing a fez. I always found it a bit disturbing when you saw him without the fez in his sketches because you kind of went, well, he's, it's like seeing Mickey Mouse has taken his ears off or something. Um, but it's, it's, it's a kind of beautiful thing, isn't it? Mm. And, and uh, you know, I don't know whether Tommy Cooper would, would ever have used this in his stage act, but perhaps he had multiple fezzes as a kind of gift thing. Yeah, I, I don't know, kind of, yeah, as you say, I don't know if he, he wore it on stage. So obviously the V&A of Tommy Cooper's archive. Yeah. And they do have a fez in that collection yeah. now as well. So, yeah, he had lots of fezzes. Lots of fezzes. Yeah, there isn't just the ur-fez, no. the, the original fez. And no. this is an interesting... Do you want to tell us about this? Because you brought this mm. thing that goes with the fez. Yeah, so alongside the fez, we have a um, a photo of Tommy Cooper on stage wearing a fez and a suit, and he's carrying some glasses on a tray, like like um, whiskey glasses. Um, but on the re reverse, he's written to Giles... Um, and it's dated March the 8th, 1977. And um, Tommy Cooper writes, Darling Giles, thank you for your lovely note. We were all asleep beneath the glasses that night. Exclamation <laughs> mark. Uh, love to Joan. Love Tommy. Kiss, kiss. That's a beautiful thing to have. And mm. and the photo is lovely as well. I mean, it's, you've got Cooper, as you say, he's holding a tray with glasses, presumably doing a magic trick. My guess is that was set up in the studio, but it, it could have been a performance shot mm. because you can see the, the uh, blue curtain behind. And he's pulling a face, the kind of slightly panicked laughter that he would do on stage in his in his act. Um, and, uh, you know, what a beautiful thing. I mean, to see the great man's handwriting, uh, you know, a personal message to go with the, the fez, what, what a lovely thing. Now, you'd think, wouldn't you, logically that because we've got a costume item relating to stand-up comedy, that we would be doing this episode about costume in stand-up comedy. But we've already done an episode on costume focused on Harry Hill's suit. So instead, because this actually comes from the Giles collection, we're actually going to talk about uh, the connection between cartoons and stand-up comedy. And in particular, the fact that for a long time now... Some cartoonists have used comedians as comic strip characters. It's not anything... I've, it's something I've been interested in for over 20 years and I've never really written anything on it. Um, but, it but it's got a surprisingly long history. So maybe we could start by... You've got a Giles um, annual there. Um, so do you want to yeah. just tell us a bit well, about that? This just goes back to the kind of the Giles-Tommy Cooper connection, really. So... Um, Every year there's a Giles annual published and somebody somebody gives an introduction to the annual and it's generally 
fans of Charles. Um, <laughs> so I picked up another one this morning in the stores and Michael Parkinson had given the introduction, right. for example. I can't remember who gave the last introduction. Um, but this annual, it's the 29th, I think it's 75, it was published, and Tommy Cooper had given the introduction. Right. Um, and yeah, Cooper was a big fan of Giles. But there's something special about this particular copy. Yeah, so we've got a f- we've got a few copies of each annual. Um, and I was just looking on the shelves this morning in our store to get one for this episode. Um, and flicking through a few of the 75 issues, 1975 issues. And yeah, this one that I've picked up, um, on top of Cooper's introduction, Giles has kind of annotated it, really. So to- Cooper's being pretty gushing about Giles and how great it is. And Giles has kind of just reversed it in a way and says how great Tommy Cooper is. So it says, it starts by saying, I think Giles is the funniest cartoonist in the world. And he's crossed out in red felt tip pen where it says Giles and cartoonist. And now it reads, I think Tommy Cooper is the funniest comedian in the world. And then it's signed Giles at the bottom. That's incredibly sweet. Yeah. They're obviously really into each other's work. Yeah. That's 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 lovely. I mean, two also two, you know, very kind of British comic institutions. One in 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 the form of, um, you know, um, car, you know, it's newspaper cartoons, and one in the form of a, a television comedian who's who, you know television, but also live. I mean, he started in Variety and things like that. So, um, so shall we now delve into the history of the connection between? comedians and cartoonists yes all right so if we perhaps move move mm-hmm. the fez out of the way because i don't want to damage it and the, this is the crink, crinkle of paper <laughs> that, that it arrived in this morning yeah because we were recording um we're recording off-site slightly aren't yeah we, yeah we're recording 30th episode. In, in my office uh for the 30th episode that's not a special thing so much <laughs> as so much as just um, uh, convenient on, on this particular day. So this is, um, I got this from a book uh, back in the 90s, um, a book of old cartoon strips. And this is from a comic called The Big Budget. Um, if you're an American listener, a, a comic is what we call, what you call comic books, because they Americans call cartoons comics, like the, the Saturday comics is the comics in the newspaper, okay. the cartoons in the newspaper. So this was a, a comic slash a comic book called The Big Budget. It sold for one D, one old penny. And this was from an edition uh, published on Saturday, January the 29th, 1898. Um, and on the front... Uh, of the of the big budget on that this particular issue, there's a, a cartoon characters called Airy Alf and Bouncing Billy. Okay, but in this edition, Airy Alf and Bouncing Billy interview Dan Lino. So, do you know who Dan Lino was? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not testing you. I'm just okay. kind of curious. What? Um, a kind of a musical star really he was a musical star i mean he was he was known as the funniest man in the world um in britain he was known as that uh but but i mean he was he was probably the most successful male musical comic of of his generation Um, was he a pantomime star he was yeah Yeah. he he he, i mean in in his musical act he appeared in various different guises He, he appeared in in drag you know as as um female characters uh, for example, one of his famous routines, Mrs. Kelly, where he plays a, a lady who keeps going about this woman, Mrs. Kelly, 
He, yes, he, he he did play dame roles in Panto very very successfully, and in the biggest Pantos, yeah. Drury Lane, for example, he was Widow Twanky quite a lot, wasn't that he? That kind of thing, yeah, 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 absolutely. And he he often in Panto, he often played opposite a guy called Herbert Campbell. Now Dan Lino was small and thin. Uh, he made jokes in his act about being small, and Herbert Campbell's a big guy, so it's quite a funny pairing, you know. Um, and in this. It's an interesting comic strip. There are no speech balloons. Um, it's just... I mean, shall I read it out? Mm. Okay, so the first frame is a- Airy Alf and Bouncing Billy going into the theatre, and it says AA and BB are commissioned to interview Dan Lino at Drury Lane Pantomime. Having hired some dress togs, they set out. The power of the press and half a crown enables them to pass through the stage door. And then you see... Um, airy alf and bouncing billy recoiling in, in surprise and shock as they see three characters well how would you describe these fellas um they've got very large heads and quite small bodies yeah okay so these what these are um it, in in victorian pantomime it's a standard feature of victorian pantomime you had big heads mm-hmm. so they the people would have these giant heads presumably made out of something like papier-mâché which was so big they would obscure the top half of their body so they look very weird and cartoony yeah, uh, kind of look a little bit like uh, Mr. Potato Head yeah. from Toy Story. <laughs> yeah, a bit like Mr. Potato yeah. Head from Toy Story. And what, only one of them's uh, like a guy with glasses and a moustache. One of them's got like an, um, like antennae and, and a red nose. And one of them's like a garden gnome, really. Um, and the, the caption to that one reads, the first things they see are a, a lot of supers in awful masks. Help, help, yells A.A., Spare me, oh spare me, groans Billy. I will never touch anything stronger than soda and milk again. So they think they're drunk. That's that's a great gag. And then so the, the third panel, uh, you see them meeting, well, in fact, not just Dan Lino, but also Herbert Campbell. And then there's a, there's a sort of chorus girl or somebody um, in the background, a fairy-type figure by the look of it. And it says, suddenly Dan Lino and Herbert Campbell appear on the scene all... all Oh, sorry, it says, I can't read it very easily because it's the, the print's very small. Ale Prince of Panto, says Billy. Don't mind if I do, answers Daniel, in a tankard, please. So it's the old hail slash ale gag there. Um, and then you see somebody bashing into Airy Alf and Bouncing Billy with a piece of scenery. And it says, all went well until the end of the first act. AA and BB are lost in admiration of the beautiful chorus girls, a scene shifter, bears down on them with a piece of scenery. The illustrious pair are hurried forward onto the stage. And then we see them being sort of... Well, what do you, does anything you notice about that? Anything interesting about that picture? I mean, what, what strikes you as odd about it? They look like they're being suspended. From the curtain. Yeah. Yeah, that is what's happening. And then you see somebody in the box at the front. And in the background, classic panto figures, a policeman and, and clown. This kind of clown look originates to the early, early-ish 19th century with a very famous clown called Joseph Grimaldi. Um, and he's, he's not exactly dressed like Grimaldi, but you can see the influence of Grimaldi in the way the clown is is dressed and it and it says just in time to get caught by the curtain as it goes up on the transformation scene which was a classic feature of victorian pantomime the audience thinks a parachute act is about to begin and cheer as aa and bb are taken higher and higher they alight in the wings and sneak round the back way and then the, the last frame has them sneaking out in disgrace and you can see herbert campbell and uh, dan lino in the background 
uh, A and B B escape with their lives. The actors hoot them as they hurry out. Uh, Alf mutters Billy, if I don't see you again, hello. Come and record your shattered, or recover, I can't read that, your shattered nerves at the purple periwinkle. So they're off to the pub. <laughs> so hilarious, <laughs> you'll agree. <laughs> Nobody would disagree about the hilarity of that. <laughs> but then shortly after that, it's January 1898, this comes along, um, Dan Leno's comic journal. And again, this is a reproduction we're looking at here. Um so this is all from my own collection of things. Um, so this is a photocopy from a book that I took 20-odd uh, years ago. So this was a, a, a comic book uh, which was first published in February 1898, and it's Dan Leno's comic journal. It's cheaper, only half a P <laughs> per copy. And on the front, you see Dan Leno pretending to be the editor of this comic. And then a bit later on, this is a later edition, there's an actual comic strip on the front with... Well, how would you describe the content of that, just looking at the pictures? It's a comic strip about Dan Leno. It's called Daniel on the Bust. Doing a bit of sort of sculpture. Yeah. And then he gets pelted with clay and turns into a kind of snowman (laughs) made of clay. And his imaginary wife and dog come in and look amazed. I assume it's his wife. I'm not sure. Maybe it's not. But a woman, a kind of matronly looking woman in, in black, quite severe looking Victorian dress. Um, staggering back in amazement at the sight of him turned into a clay man. Was he ever called Daniel on stage? Was it Daniel? Not really. No. I don't know why it says Daniel like that. Maybe that's the joke, though. Sometimes, you know, if somebody's always known by their short name, mm. it's quite funny to call them. In fact, I was listening to an episode of Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast, Rahalustapur, this morning on the way in, and it's uh, Al Murray, and he insists on calling him Alan Murray. So mm. it's the same sort of thing, I what suppose. What's that his name, Alan? I don't know. Oh. I actually I don't know, and I should. It's probably not, because Richard Herring delights and gets things deliberately wrong. Um, so this is uh, another example, quite interesting. This is a bit later, from uh, 1908. This is from Lotta Fun Comic, which, again, is only half a P per issue. And uh, Hapney. Um, and it's it's uh, this is Dreamy Daniel meets Dreamy Daniel at the Hope and Empire. So Dreamy Daniel is a comic strip character, uh, you know, an established character. But in this episode, it's really weird. It's a bit, I mean, nowadays you'd say postmodern, but obviously the, the term didn't exist then. Um, because what happens is there was, a, there was a, a music hall comic called Harry Rogerson, whose persona was exactly like Dreamy Daniel. Um, so what happens is Dreamy Daniel goes to see Harry Rogerson at the Hope and Empire, a famous um, variety theatre, and watches his act and they meet and they end up sharing a glass of wine probably, it looks like, or champagne maybe even, mm. at the end of the strip. But that's an interesting example because rather than just taking an existing uh, character that's based on a stage act, it's like, it's reciprocal, you know, the, the, it acknowledges that it could be two-way, that maybe um, comedians could take their personas from cartoon characters. Like, for example, there was a, there was a variety comic called Billy Russell whose Bill Matter read on behalf of the working classes um, and he was a sort of labourer character and he based his character on this character Old Bill who was uh, created by the uh, cartoonist Bruce Bairn's father and was a huge cultural phenomenon in the First World War so the idea of of this was Old Bill in civvies you know that he was just this working class guy with a walrus moustache and if you see Old Bill the character and you see Billy Russell the comedian, you can instantly tell that that's how it had worked. This one is a bit later still. This is from uh, 1916. And again, it's half a D, uh, a halfpenny, an issue, Merry and Bright. 
And on the front, the what do you want to read the title there? Uh, Little Titch, the one and only, doesn't get left at the post. So this is Little Titch, the uh, another great um, music hall comic, and he's even by the the sort of masthead of the comic. You see a picture of him in his his uh, signature big boots. He used to wear these big boots to do this very famous big boot dance. And um, in in the strip, you see Little Titch using his big boots to skip a queue to get on an omnibus. And he, he, he climbs on and lodges on the side of the omnibus by a cane and his boots sort of hanging off the top deck. But he, or oh, something goes awry here. Yeah, he gets caught on a lamppost and hoiked off the bus by that. But he manages to walk over the top of... Um, the heads of people queuing to get into the frivolity theatre to see Little Titch. And it ends with him leaning out the window and there is actually a speech bubble there and he's saying... See you all later. See you all later. And they're all cheering, bravo, and things. <laughs> so, yeah, it's worth saying that the... So there are, these are isolated examples of, of comedians being used as comic strip characters. But I've got a book here by... Graham King and Ron Saxby called The Wonderful World of Film Fun, 1920 to 1962. Film Fun was a really long-running comic, as you could tell from those dates. And it also had um, sister publications, uh, Radio Fun and later TV Fun, which was a slightly more short-lived one. And the whole thing with this is that, not necessarily all, but most of the characters were based on... um, comedians so on the cover you've got a thing from a laurel and hardy strip and it goes right back to the silent era you've got fatty arbuckle and 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 things like that but because it goes up to 1962 you have more modern comics as well so on this double page spread you've got ken dodd on one page and who's this who on earth could Mm. this be on this page got tommy cooper a warm welcome by tommy cooper and you've got quite a i mean it's an interesting artistic rendition of him here i think i mean the way that the cartoonist has sort of simplified him do you think he's recognizable yes because of the fez really i think and the i suppose the hair as well coming out of the fez yeah the mad hair isn't it yeah the mad hair sort of slightly Um, sticking out of the of the fez the chin is quite strong as well yeah the chin is strong so they've got it's it's it you know if you looked I think if you looked at the face in isolation you might not know that it was Tommy Cooper but the fact he's wearing a fez combined with a a, a dinner jacket and bow tie and um kind of inoffensive but kind of narrow inconspicuous trousers kind of thing I think the whole look says Tommy Cooper quite quite broadly and it's interesting you know the extent to which they use the actual stage or performance properties of the comedian in the strip. I mean, sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. Um, I mean, in this one, he's certainly not doing any magic or anything like that. Uh, he's just, you could almost swap him out for somebody else, you know, a different, you know, non-comedian-based comic strip character. But it's interesting that the the, the editorial policy was to, you know, to base these things on, actual comedians i also read a read, read a an interview with one of the cartoonists who worked for those publications who i think he used to draw uh, laurel and hardy and he he when laurel and hardy toured the uk he thought oh because i draw them i'll get to meet them and the publisher said 
well, I don't actually know they're in this comic. So they were using their distinctive likeness without um, permission, which is quite an interesting thing. You know. Were they naming them as Oh, well? yeah. It's oh, called Lauren and Hardy. Yeah, absolutely. I think there was one comic who gave permission or, or whose permission was, 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 it was deemed was needed to be sought, which was George Formby. I don't know if they paid Formby anything to use him, but uh, I know that they did that. This one is quite interesting. Uh, this is a book published by Coronet, Inside Woody Allen, Selections from the Comic Strip. So the comic strip was, I think, from... Well, it says syndicated in newspapers throughout the, the United States, and it's appeared in over 60 foreign countries. And it's Woody Allen as a, as a comic strip character. I don't, we're not going to get into his current um, travails because, I, you know, it's a very complex issue. But it's interesting that he's shown here in... Not, not in some of the strips he's sort of shown on a psychiatrist's couch. In some of them, he's just having adventures in and around the world. But in this one, he's shown on stage. And again, a good question: Do you think he's recognisable there? Because it's um, very simplified. Yeah. Mm, I don't know because I know it's really Allen. But if I hadn't, yeah, I'm not sure. I think I think it's, they've given him kind of messy hair, an oversized head, and glasses, I mean, and glasses. And his face shape, he does. If you look at his mouth shape, he does kind of look like him. I think he looks like him in, enough to sort of tell if it said, you know, Woody Allen next to the strip. Um, but certainly, you can recognise his stage style. Um, shall I read this one out? Okay. So he says it's just it's just one joke really split into four frames, and in each frame it's very similar. He's just talking to a microphone. You can see some people in the front row, and there's a sort of spotlight on him. It says, the ex-Mrs. Allen... I'm not going to try and do the voice. The ex-Mrs. Allen used to tell me I was immature and acted like a child. Finally, I got up the courage to confront the issue head on. For one entire day, I practised what I would say to her. But when she came home and I raised my hand, she wouldn't call on me. So that is... I mean, that is the sort of thing he would very much joke about in his stage act. I mean, he used to say the ex-Mrs. Allen, for example, uh, in in his act. So... It's it's interesting that the strip does, in this case, reflect... And even when he's out in the world, you know, having adventures beyond the stage or beyond the psychiatrist's couch, um, it's the kind of imaginary world that he, ex- you know, inhabited in his stage act. So did he write this? I don't know. The... Let's have a look what it says in the copyright. It says, drawn by Stuart Hample. So it doesn't actually attribute it. It doesn't say an author on it, and it, in the copyright it just says copyright nine seventy eight by IWA Enterprises Inc. Hackenbush Productions Inc. So I am not sure. That is a very good question whether it, whether Woody Allen used to write it or not. But of course there is an issue there, isn't there? Because if comedians are being represented in graphic form, there is an issue of control. I mean, I know, like, we wouldn't, in our jobs, we wouldn't get turned into comic strip characters, but if you suddenly opened up a comic book and saw The Adventures of Elspeth Miller, I mean, how would you feel about that? Not very happy, It's I think, weird, isn't it? Yeah, because yeah. I suppose with a public persona, you're then, it's another representation of that person, and if you've not given permission, or if they're not your words, then it is... Yeah. Because it's not like an impressionist when you can clearly tell an impressionist is doing an impression of you. Yeah, for satirical it's, purposes. Yeah it's, it, yeah, it's unclear, I think, there, whether it's 
directly tied to Woody Allen. Well, there, I mean, there have been cases of of um, advertisers clearly using distinctive likenesses of cele- celebrities. Um, I think the rap, the eighties rap group, the, the Fat Boys were were sort of mocked up on a, on an advert. And I think in some cases those things have been challenged in court and 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 successfully as well. Because I suppose the thing is, if you if you, you're right, it is different for us because we're not public figures really. Um, but uh, in spite of the massive success of this podcast, mm-hmm. but but um, you know you you do have to think about you know how you're perceived out there in the world, and and comedians are surprisingly and and sensibly careful about you know c- controlling their image in a way. Well, for a lot of them, it's their livelihood, right? It? Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting you say that actually because in now I forget the exact dates of this, but I think it was just before the Second World War. Um, there was a conference on copyright somewhere in Europe and the Variety Artists Federation of the UK tried to get a persona, stage persona or personality as they, they termed it at the time, brought into copyright law so that you could actually do somebody not just for nicking your material but also for nicking your, mm. your, your, your identity, your stage identity, your public identity. So I don't I mean it wasn't successful, but it it was certainly talked about. Um, I presume sorry, if it was published in sixty countries and around the US, then he's probably given permission. He's, he's definitely given it. He must have given his permission. He absolutely must. And, and there's a chance that he wrote them. I'm not. I'm not sure. If you're listening to this and you know the answer, then do get in contact with us. We'll give you details about how to do that at the end. But that brings us very neatly onto this. So this is a book. Uh, called it's called Billy Connolly Bring on the Big Yin and it's by McCormick and it says on the front as featured in the Sunday Mail so it was in a Scottish newspaper in the 1970s but this is the published version of it and I mean again I mean how, how would you describe that drawing of Billy Connolly I can see like the similarities picture if I'm picturing him in the 70s right. then you know it's the quite the big hair and the beard and he's tall. Yeah. And he's wearing kind of the kind of slightly freakish clothes. I mean, I mean, freak in the sense of hippie, yeah. you know, uh, clothes. You know, he's, he's wearing a sort of purple, um, uh, I don't know, top thing and and red flares and what look like kind of platform soles. Uh, so he's the look is I think you could sort of tell it's him. Um, it's very colourful. It's really colourful. Like, y- yeah, that's what really stands out for me. The, yeah, the deep colours. The deep colours. You can see it's been felt tipped as well because you can see the texture of the felt felt tips. And uh, there's, I mean, if you look at the kind of contents, uh, it, it's also it's it's really funny for us as as English people. Well, not funny for us. It's for other funny for other people listening to us trying to make sense of it because it's written in dialect. Mm. So, for example, this strip here that I've marked out, uh, the first frame is is Billy Connolly with a tam o'shanter on, looking worse for wear, carrying a bottle of Iron Brew, a classic Scottish soft drink. Made in Scotland from Gardars, um, and he, the the in the background there's a you can see his companion who is supposed to be McCormick, the um, the uh, cartoonist who was also in his backing band for a stage act, and uh, Billy's saying "Ouya, my head's bursting." This is where it gets funny for other people because obviously I'm ridiculous when I try and sound Scottish. Ne wonder. After scoffing vodka and lemonade, gin and lemonade, and whiskey and with lemonade, 
I, this is next frame, I, Yon Lemonade, just Disney, agree with me. And so, yeah, there's, there's, in fact, at the back of the book, there's a, there's a, uh, a glossary of terms to help <laughs> pathetic good. English folk like me. So you've got bahuki, backside or bum, or boke, vomit, or um, uh, gallus, flashy, swaggering flashy, done with panache. And so on. The one I like in here is Chuki Embra, which means Duke of Edinburgh. <laughs> uh, but, there, but there's quite an interesting detail on the front. So there's something weird on his arm just here. You want to describe what that is? Yeah. Uh, it looks like there's been an amendment there to has. The, um, the original cover. So on his arm or hand? On his forearm, I think it's supposed to be. Because I think it's. It looks yeah. like there's a, a tattoo yeah. that's been covered up with some. Like blue hearts, or maybe yeah. they're just blue splodges. Yeah, that's right. And and in fact, I've, I think that might even be scratched the edge of there because I, I read about it sometime after I bought it, and that is an overprint. And actually, as I understand it, Billy Connolly fell out with McCormick over the content of the strip, and I think it was discontinued. And there were a couple of things. One is that there are some episodes which are quite racist. And then the other thing was that McCormick was a sort of Scottish nationalist and... and Connolly at the time was a socialist and it didn't really reflect he didn't you know all that stuff about down with the English and things he, he didn't really so it said something like doom with the English as a tattoo on his arm and he wasn't happy about that so the book had to have a, an amendment and if you think you know how, how expensive it is to print something that must have been quite a serious dispute this is an interesting one so this is um uh John Dowie um, John Dow is an amazing comic, a huge influence and a, a kind of unsung comedy hero, really. Uh, he, he started doing something like alternative comedy in the late 60s when he first started, I think, sort of playing around with it. By 71, he was doing his first Edinburgh show. And uh, he later, when alternative comedy started, sort of became involved in that scene. I think somewhat grudgingly, as you could imagine, having been doing it for so long. But this book was published by Knockabout Comics, um, and Knockabout is a kind of underground comic-style publisher, and Hunt Emerson is the illustrator. So it's a book of routines, in fact, you know, written out as text, uh, John Dowie routines, written out as text, but illustrated by Hunt Emerson. But what's super fun is that some of them are actually written out in the form of Hunt Emerson comic strips. So it's John Dowie's material, but brought to life graphically, by Hunt Emerson, who's a fantastic draftsman. I mean, it's that classic style. I mean, you can see the kind of Robert Crumb sort of similarities. Uh, it's detailed and grotesque and really engaging, like really fun to look at, at the strips. And actually, John Dowie's less of a well-known figure, but I think you can recognise him quite well, actually. I think he's got the likeness well of John Dowie. Um, so that's an interesting example. That's a slightly different style, slightly finer line on that one. Almost the last example I've got, this is, this is a great... Uh, around the same time, a couple of these came out, graphic novels written by comedians. So there was a Lenny Henry one, uh, which I haven't got with me today, but uh, this one is Alexi Sale and Oscar Zarate's Jeffrey the Tube Train and the Fat Comedian. And it, I think this is a terrific piece of work. It's sort of about... It's like a Thomas the Tank Engine, like a twisted Thomas the Tank Engine based on a tube train. And it, what I think is great about this is that it does sort of reflect Alexi Sale's stage act. So you see scenes here. I mean, how how would you describe what's going on in these pictures? 
a little bit like apocalyptic kind of yeah <laughs> so. So, so it's an apocalypse, and you've got tower blocks in the background, and you've got First World War aeroplanes crashing in flames. Mm-hmm. Rastafarians dressed as as kind of First World War Tommies, and then you've got Mari Lloyd, the um, the music hall singer. This slightly montage element there because that's been taken from a photo and coloured in and added to the to the drawing. Um, it's like barbed wire on the other page. Yeah, barbed wire around. And... Yeah, yeah. So it's sort of London. Are they, are they water guns? As well? Yeah, yeah, water cannons. Yeah. yeah. So it's like a sort of apocalyptic vision of of urban London, you know, with tower blocks and things. And you know, it, it, to me, that really reminds me of some of Alexi Sell's routines from the eighties. Like he had a thing, Stoke Newington calling, um, which you know, it was a sort of dysfunctional view of, of what was happening in London, or it's a view of the dysfunction that was happening in London, a politicised review in, 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 in many ways. Um, but also, it's, it's interesting because you see shots of, or scenes uh, of Alexis Sale on stage. So in this one, he's in a comedy club in London, um, and they've, he's got a red nose drawn on him. But again, like the Mari Lloyd picture, his his actual face in these pictures... It's taken from photos, but coloured in, and then with a drawn body. And some of the gags that he does here um, are from his act. But also it's quite interesting because he uh, he's talking about a real thing on the comedy circuit, which was a taboo around certain language. So um, uh, there's uh, basically... the. the, the it was a very left-wing scene, the alternative comedy or alternative cabaret scene of the 80s. And uh, so people would be, often be censured for what they said by members of the audience because they were deemed to be sexist or something. And so, for example, if you just use words like cunt, that was deemed to be an affront to women. Um, you know, and that's an argument. That's a fine argument. You know, I don't want to get into the, the merits or demerits of that argument. But the fact is that you could get into trouble for it. So in this one, he uses a bad word according to what the audience think. And I mean, he says here, London is a city of tribes. The tribe here tonight had once flourished all over the, all over the city. But like ancient Celts, they'd now been beaten back to distant corners of North London. And by tribes, he's talking about left-wing tribes there. This tribe put a lot of store in words. If you said the wrong words, it was bad magic. They became very cross. And he imagines himself being mobbed by a group of angry feminists um, and <laughs> having to run out. And, you know, as I say, in those shots, his face is, is photographed, but in most of the book, he's just drawn as a character. And I think, again, you can sort of tell that it's him. You've got the distinctive look of the suit. Well, I don't know, what do you think about yeah. the face? Yeah, no, I think it does. Yeah, and he's, yeah. he's I mean, the, the, the skinhead is, is a thing, and the, I think the eyes are very good. Yeah, he's got quite dark rings around his eyes yeah but yeah the suit as well it's like a bit baggy in place yeah yeah and tight in others <laughs> yes absolutely so the last one i wanted us to look at i said that i've been uh looking at the comedians as comic strips characters um oh actually no wait that is, isn't the last one uh we should look at oh, of course, yeah. we've got some more actually sorry uh, yeah so we've got a few examples from the stand-up comedy archive collections so um, Arnold in Arnold Brown's collection, um, he gave us a copy of a cartoon that Mal Kalman did, and he's not actually in it, um, but he's kind of referenced in it. So it's um, 
it's people queuing up to see an Arnold Brown show. Um, and we know it's a show of Arnold Brown because there's a poster on the wall that says, Tonight, Arnold Brown, the cult comedian. And um, one of the audience members is saying, Isn't he the one with the funny catchphrase, I can never remember? So we've talked about his catchphrase before. We have. We? And it's a classic Kalman style. I mean, the, the, the very simplified figures with the big round noses. That's a really nice cartoon. Um, and then we've also got some examples from Harry Hill's collection from harry hill's collection yeah fantastic because it's good even though the the main item is the tommy cooper fez which is, doesn't come from the stand-up archive it's really nice that we have things in the stand-up archive that relate to this topic yes so we've got um let's have a look oh we've got five issues of the dandy right um where there's a harry hill strip that appeared so it was called Harry Hill's Real Life Adventures in TV Land by Harry Hill and Nigel Parkinson. And then we've also got um, an issue of the Beano in which there's a Harry Hill disguise kit for Red Nose Day, which is really cool. <laughs> and, and the kit is just amazing because it's, it's just a printed piece of paper, but you can sort of cut out a bald dome with glasses mm. And presumably you make it into a mask and stick it on your face. Yeah, and then there's other disguises as well. So there's um, a Brucey bonus chin. I presume that's... Bruce Forsyth. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like a chin that you can cut out. Yeah. Kind of a long chin. Well, Bruce Forsyth appeared in Film Fun, I think, okay. as, a, as a comic strip character, interestingly. Um, and then there's a moustache that you could cut out as well, but I don't know who that's... Who that's supposed to be. No. I mean, it's interesting because Harry Hill in there looks like a bona fide cartoon character. His mm. face is very simplified, but because his look is so distinctive, you know, with the sort of the bald head, the glasses, the, the big shirt. collars, yeah. yeah, and the suits, it's like he, he's almost a cartoony figure in his stage act anyway. So again, it shows the kind of... Um, the sort of the, the the back and forth between the world of the stage and the world of sort of TV comedy, and then the world of of cartoons in print. Um, because I mean, you know, you, I think it's really recognisable as Harry Hill, but the face is so simplified from mm. from Matthew Hall's face, you know, the actual man's face kind of thing. That's really that's a really great um, set of of comics there. Um, but th but this is interesting that you've brought because it looks like it's it's the rough plan of a comic strip. It's laid out in so on this page there are five strips of three panels, and you see drawings in them, and they're drawings of Harry Hill, um, and there's let lettering underneath. But I think this is some kind of storyboard for a TV show. Because the, it's dated first uh, of March '99, and in the he didn't start appearing in the Dandy for a number of years after mm. that. So I think this is planning for an episode of the Harry Hill Show on Channel Four. Is my guess. Um, I haven't checked the dates of transmission for that show, but it, that's what it looks like. It looks like it's a, it's a, it's a, certainly it's well, it's a storyboard for something, something I would guess TV. A TV show of some sort. I think Harry Hill's recognisable in those. He's very recognisable in those. You can definitely tell it's him, even though the drawings are sketch style style drawings rather than finished cartoons. But again, that is that's a brilliant bit of evidence to show, you know, the connections, the historical connections between cartooning and and performed comedy. Yeah. Fantastic. 
Um, that's that's a great set of of, of uh, items there, and it's interesting because that's that's two different collections within the Stand Up Archive: the Arnold Brown one and then the um, the Harry Hill collection as well. And there's probably more if we thought about it. So the last one is uh, I said I've been interested in in um, comedians and comic strips for a long time, and I, I, I wanted to get something published um, a long time ago, and I never got the project finished. But one thing I did for it was I thought it'd be quite funny to do an about the author page in the form of a comic strip about me. So it's about me as a comic strip character, and uh, uh, well, I don't know. Shall I shall I read it out? Yeah. It, it, it definitely <laughs> reflects my act because you've got me there. Uh, drawn in in a in a suit, but with a hooded top, and that was yes. my stage gear of the time. You've talked about that, yeah, in the yeah. costume episode. Yep, indeed, and that's 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 me with and a, a big boots on as well, but probably DMs or something, and. Um, uh, and I say the first frame I go hi there ace stand up comedian and author Oliver Double here as I wrote and drew this strip myself it should be a dead accurate reflection of my stage style and then in the second frame you see me on stage with cheering people to cheering we want Ollie we want Ollie and then I put but and then there's like a bunch of characters meaning a swear word but swear word that this is my chance to abuse my position and I intend to abuse it to the full you see before you the greatest comedian of all time. And then I walk towards the mic and it says, hooray, and it says, ear-splitting cheer. And then you've got two versions of me in the next frame. There's me narrating and there's me on stage. So the narrator says, check it out. Five minutes later, when the applause has died down to a mere raging torrent, I could tell them any gag, I, I could tell them any gag and they'll love it. And then the stage version of me is saying, have you got any brummies in? Obviously, I shouldn't say brummies. I should say regionally challenged. And I should just point out that was in my hack that, <laughs> that that joke, and and it it was a it was a it was a banker. You always got to laugh. Um, and then the next frame, the narrator saying, "No matter how rubbish it is," and I'm saying, "What do you call vicars with totally smooth chests?" And the audience says, "We don't know. What do you call vicars with totally smooth chests?" Which obviously no audience would do in unison. And I go, "Nippleless Parsons." Um, and and there's a thing. To pointing towards the joke and it says very lame joke and I am ashamed to say I did tell that joke on stage but it was told as a deliberately bad joke and it kind of worked I mean you know for the short time I used it the next frame we've got narrator me saying in fact I don't even have to tell jokes at all everything I say is blessed by the comedy god and you have the stage me saying donkey flaps eyes right banana breath in parsley sauce aruga aruga and you've got two people at the front one saying that's so funny and the next one saying yes and then you've got a guy. Well, do you want to describe how I've drawn him here? He's got like a bowl cut haircut and wearing a suit. And he looks a bit cross. Yeah, he's cross. And he, he's he, a bit of a square. Like. Yeah, he's a bit of a square. He is. And he's got a kind of cylindrical, perfect cylindrical head with this bowl cut on top. And he's got the swear word symbols thing. Swear word off. You're the swear word. And then the next frame... Um, narrator me says why should I allow somebody to heckle me in my own self-created comedy paradise self-delusion because I can take on any heckler in a totally off-the-cuff unpremeditated fashion that's why and you see the stage me saying yeah mate but your head looks like a mushroom which it kind of does because obviously see, I didn't I'm, read ahead <laughs> there we go you see I've drawn it like that you see, see how I set that one up <laughs> and uh and then you got one to saying, how well observed. And another one saying, his head really does look like a mushroom. And the mushroom guy is going, grrr, and there's steam coming out of his ear. And then uh, the penultimate frame narrator says, and at the end of the gig, 
and, it, and you've got the audience chanting, a deafening chant lasting several hours, hail Ollie, God of comedy. And then it cuts back to me drawing the strip and I'm saying... God, I'm sad. God, I'm sad. <laughs> Which is true. I am terribly, terribly sad. <laughs> so, yeah, um, the Fez. It, I think that's a really fantastic object. Did you, did you, I mean, when did you first sort of set eyes on it? Quite recently, actually. Really? Yeah, I mean, it is, um, the jars collection has been catalogued for quite a while. And um, we do get a fair amount of requests for Giles material, but it's mainly artwork. Yeah. Either for use in a publication or um, just generally because people are Giles fans and they they remember certain strips. So we get people inquiring about, oh, so-and-so strip, it had this in it, it had that in it, and we can help them kind of find the strip in our catalogue. Um, but, yeah, I, I hadn't really kind of looked at much of the studio stuff before. And this is catalogued within a, a series called Gifts. So I don't know what, what other gifts he received. Fascinating. But, um, yeah, we, we had it out recently in the reading room for a, an event, I think. And, um, Not just for fun. Time. No. Not just for a party. That was the first time I'd seen <laughs> Let's it. Let's put on Tommy Cooper's yeah. face. That'd be terrible. Oh, no, no. Terrible <laughs> practice, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. <laughs> <laughs> I once visited the British Music Hall Society's archive uh, with a friend of mine, Max Tyler, who's sadly died um recently but um they had a one of max miller's suits and he let me try it on i know you've told me this before i know i thought i might mention it in a previous episode but i just couldn't help mentioning it again yeah i'm afraid you can't try the costumes on when no. you visit us well the thing is the, the point of an archive is it's to preserve the materials mm. and, and it could damage them to yeah. so yeah no trying on of the Tommy cooper face no matter how tempting it is yeah. But this podcast isn't just about us telling you stuff. It's also about you getting involved. Get involved! There are various ways that you can get involved in this podcast, but first you'll need to know how to contact us. You can email us via standup at kent.ac.uk. That's standup, all one word, no hyphen, at kent.ac.uk. Or you can find us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at histcompod. So the first way you can get involved is go to the online catalogue for the Stand Up Comedy Archive, find a listing for a comedy object and nominate it. We'll talk about all nominated objects in future episodes. That's the vanilla version of getting involved. The chocolate chip version of getting involved is to come and visit the British Stand Up Comedy Archive in the Templeman Library at the University of Kent. If you record a short piece um, about the object that you've seen send us the audio and we'll feature it in a future episode and the stupidest way of getting involved let's call it the tutti frutti way (laughs) is to record your own cover version of our theme tune for the podcast send it to us and if we like it we'll feature it in a future episode just to let you know if you do get involved we will give you rewards like podcast badges british standard comedy archive t-shirts and that kind of pizzazz if that's a word, it is now. <laughs> a history of comedy and several objects is devised and presented by Dr. Oliver Double and Elspeth Miller for the British Standard Comedy Archive, brought to you by the University of Kent. This is made possible by the University of Kent's Public Engagement Research Fund. Photography by Matt Wilson and editing and production by Matt Hoss. <laughs>